Hey Kyle, Luciano Cuno here, born in Peru, raised in Miami. Right now I'm driving uh, through the Florida Turnpike, listening to your podcast. And I just want to reach out and send some positive vibes, man. If you're ever in town, feel free to hit me up. Uh, I'm into surfing and all that stuff, so I try to go out as much as I can. Your podcast pushes me to try to be a little more adventurous wherever I go, so thanks to that, man. Keep up the great work. Luciano, thank you for sending that in. I have been down to Peru. I love that country. I got to surf a wave called Chicama, which some say is the longest left-hander in the world. Great trip. Went there with my dad uh, when I was 14, and then we went into the Manu jungle, which is a few hours outside of Cusco. Uh, and it's the most ecologically diverse place on the planet. We did a seven-night river rafting trip, and I got to see a fight between a caiman and a, a pack of giant otters. They're like six-foot otters. I don't know what you call a pack, a squad, a murderer. It's a murderer of crows. You know that? Bet you didn't. Maybe you did. This episode of the podcast is with Anya Kotz. Anya is a podcaster determined to redefine the way we think about and construct the world around us. It's quite a task, Anya, but you're well on your way. She hosts two podcasts, The Millennial's Guide to Saving the World and The Horror Report. The Horror Report. (laughs) Great name. Where she has conversations around sexuality, gender, grief, trauma, regenerative agriculture, spirituality, and more. Anya is a friend of mine, and we love talking shit. You can check out all of my stuff over at my website, kyle.surf. But for now, that's it. So please welcome to the podcast, Anya Kotz. Here we are, Anya Katz in Yo. the house. How you doing today? So good, especially with this hot cup of coffee. It's oh, like it's healing my soul. Oh, yeah, coffee makes me poop. I like it. Yeah, it's the best. Uh, well, you been reading anything recently? Any good books? I've been reading a couple things simultaneously, which is sort of my uh, my jam. Um, reading this book, Nisa, which is right here. It's basically the telling the story of the life of a woman, hunter-gatherer woman, um, which is fascinating and sort of covers all different aspects of uh, life in their tribe from sexuality to food to um, relationships and sort of how they view outsiders. Uh, So that's been really fascinating. Wasn't it written by a woman who visited the tribe and rather than writing a book about the whole tribe, she decided to focus in on this one woman, Nisa? Yes. And mostly that was because Nisa was the one woman that really opened up to her uh, in a really like honest and vulnerable way. Um, A lot of the stories that she was getting before felt a lot of felt very like surface level. Um, And uh, this one particular woman sort of understood that uh, Marjorie Shostak was, uh, you know, someone that she could trust 
and sort of understood the project and really decided to <laughs> say everything. Um, so it's really cool because the, the book is sort of, it's organized in the sense that you hear from Nisa directly and then, um, or before you hear from her directly, you hear of like Marjorie's sort of overview of whatever topic she's about to introduce through Nisa's story. Uh, so it sort of gives you both this like autobiographical and anthropological perspective, which mm -hmm. is really cool. And do they talk a lot about sexuality in the tribe? Um, they do, yeah, uh, in in multiple different ways, like both in regard to how it's structured within a relationship. They talk about childbirth, um, sexuality, like sexual experimentation, which was sort of, I mean, as it always is in any culture, sort of like rampant in adolescence and stuff and how they learn about sexuality and sex. And um, How do they? I mean, basically with little kids playing with each other um, and, and mimicking a, a lot of what the they see the adults doing or how the adults behave. And um, it's really, you know, unlike our culture in many ways, if you were to sort of remove the cultural societal expectations and, you know, patriarchy and all the rest. I mean, all of it's very relatable. Yeah. Little kids humping is something that we don't like to talk <laughs> yeah, about. But which happens all the time. Oh, all the little kids are humping. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Big time. What else are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. You know, I did a podcast with sex, sex and somatic coach, Amy Baldwin yeah. a while back. And she brought up this, um, she said, do you remember having orgasms before you could ejaculate. And I was like, I do. That was, I, I, it was like this lost memory of being a little kid humping pillows before you could even, before you even hit puberty. And it's this whole like pre-sexual time that we don't really, I, I had never really learned about it or thought about it, but uh, yeah, we're, we don't, we're sexual beings from birth. Yeah, totally. It seems I, I'm not saying I say that with an upward inflection cause it's a question, but I, I would make that assumption. I you, think you'd say it with a downward inflection. Yeah. Which is why I think I always <clears throat> think questionably when someone says something like you're sexualizing my body or like that person sexualizing that person to me, it doesn't make sense because I feel like we are sexual. What we choose to do with that sexuality is varied and could be asexual if you want it to. But the fact that we're not all inherently sexual to me is a concept I don't understand. So I, I'd much rather <clears throat> embrace that sort of quote unquote sexualization than I would to be afraid of it. Because to me, it's something that seems to be much more, you know, innate and biological mm. and was there less shame in the nisa experience around young sexuality yeah i mean there's basically none you know they sort of act toward that type of behavior in adolescence as they would you know it's it's one of those things where it's like everyone knows it's going on they're sort of trying to be you know oh don't do that in front of other people it's it's sort of that but it's nothing like what you're doing is wrong there was there's no degree of that um they're you know they're all living in such close quarters like the way that she describes it is basically they're all you know there are families but they're all living together in a tribe and they all have these sort of tents that are all surrounding one fire pit so all the doors sort of open into this common space um there's really no 
true ability to be totally private, even having sex. Like the reason the kids sort of learn how to do it is because they're often sleeping in the same bed or next to their parents, um, who are having sex under the covers basically. Um, so, you know, it's, it's impossible to pretend as if something so common and so natural is anything to be ashamed of. It would be the same as thinking like eating is shameful, you know, it's it's just here. We can't pretend like it's not going on. Yeah, you're, on the, you're all in the common space. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, okay, they're fucking over there. Like, they wouldn't be doing that if it was wrong. You know, how do you make babies if you don't do that? I mean, that's... I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, p- people who live in homes where there aren't walls up uh, must need to have their sexual life be more open just inherently. Whereas, yeah. like, here, it's like, yeah, I, re- I always remember that scene in that movie Richie Rich, where they have the huge dining room table, and Richie's at one side, and the parents are at the other, and they're calling each other to talk through dinner. Yeah, this actually, like, sort of brings up one of the most fascinating aspects of the world for me, which is the notion of public and private, uh, which is sort of like an area of focus that can't really be... Like, you don't know what discipline to put it in, Um, but I've read a couple of, uh, I I took a class in college, most amazing class I ever took, called uh, Both Public and Private, The Social Construction of Family Life. And so it talked about, you know, how the nuclear family got to be created, but the course in general took a perspective around how physical space influenced not just the nuclear family, but aspects of property and privacy and how we sort of went inward and how did that change things and what do we think about as public space versus private space and like the public domain and the public realm and how that also brings in like uh, um, the media, right? Like when we didn't have the media, like what was the public realm? Um, I think these are fascinating concepts to me because I do think that, you know, there's a sort of intangible um, cultural and societal, you know, structure, quote unquote, that we fall into, like ideals and beliefs and all of that. But I also think a good deal of how we become a person or, or gain our specific beliefs about the world also has a lot to do with the context, like the physical context that we're in. Um, so I'm very into like, how does creating a physical world influence a belief system or how does that influence emotionality and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, what's your cultural <laughs> milieu? Right. I think about that quite a bit. How much would would I be – I think of it in terms of ethics and morality because I was born in a certain place and I then grew up with a set of ethics. Right. I wonder – how my behavior would have shifted if I was born in a place like Afghanistan. Yeah. Like, would I still be me? How much of me would I still be? Yeah. Or how much would I have those belief systems internalized thinking that it was my own, uh, my own thinking? Yeah. Probably most, mostly it's a lot easier to jump in that river and just go along with it and kind of keep your eyes closed and do what other people tell you to think, but you're not doing that. Are you on your cats? You're thinking for yourself. You're a rebel. <laughs> I'm doing my best. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I do think it's both. I, it's hard for me to, um, find things about myself that I can't necessarily like trace back to my childhood experience. And if I can't trace it back to that, I'm, I'm normally thinking it's some sort of like ancestral 
pattern or trauma or, you know, um, but certainly the way that my life is being expressed is absolutely being formed by my surroundings and my circumstance without a doubt. Do you know much about ancestral trauma? Uh, I mean, I guess it depends what you qualify as much. Um, I did do a lot of like sort of deep dives into it, going through a pretty intense, dark period of my life, um, where I sort of just were like, "Grandma, did you give this to me?" <laughs> yeah, well, it became. I mean, once I sort of became aware of the patterns um, of my own childhood, it wasn't very difficult for me to then sort of like trace that through to you know well what was my mom's childhood like and like oh fuck what was my grandmother's childhood like um and sort of thinking about and seeing how certain patterns or energies or archetypes seem to be sort of passed down through those generations um so that was how I approached it I feel like from an intellectual logical standpoint but then there was also this feeling of I remember like grieving a lot and this, I mean, the period of time that I was in was like so complex and there was so much going on and so much for me to be upset about. But even still, I felt like the pain that I was feeling felt like more than just my own. Mm. Um, it didn't make sense to me. And maybe that's just because I hadn't felt feelings in so long that I didn't know what they felt like. But I did feel like there's part of me that feels like I'm grieving on behalf of my mother, my grandmother, her mother. Um, so it felt it felt very sort of intuitive, I suppose. What were some of those patterns that were passed down? Oh God, um, codependency, uh, especially in regard to like mother daughter relationships. So, um, you know, codependency. I think people misunderstand what that means. They think it's like you have to be around a person all the time. And I, I sort of see it or define it as just like an unhealthy uh, relationship pattern that can be, you know, it can show up and you do have to physically be with that person all the time. It can be avoidantly codependent. It's basically like you're stuck in this way of relating to people that's unhealthy. Um, so uh, I think my relationship with my mother and my mother's relationship with her mother was one that was too close, too tight knit. Um, and whatever I did affected my mom in a really intense and severe way. It was sort of like I was her limb in a sense. Um, and I also think that, you know, I sort of wrote this thing during this time about how, you know, we can't have our loved ones be shelves for our grief uh, I think it happens like when you break up with someone and then you immediately start dating someone else, you sort of put all your pain, you just like hold it in, in that person. And then if that person leaves, you have like yet another shelf of pain. You're like, yeah. fuck, let me find someone else. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I'm um, picturing like all the shelves crashing down. Exactly. <laughs> and that, I think that's absolutely what happened to me. Um, but I think in the case of my mother and her mother and God knows before that, I think there was a lot of energy and, um, uh, put into the, the child, right? Like this child saved me. I mean, it's very similar to a romantic relationship. Like I'm not happy. And this, this child or this person's going to save me. They're going to bring meaning to my life. But of course, what happens if that person decides to do something that you don't align with, you know, well, no, you can't like, you're my whole life's purpose. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I know that I, I know someone who's, has to be 
their mother and right. has had to do that and fill that role since they were 12 years old. Right. And the mother has had a real hard time watching the kids grow up because then her identity recedes away exactly. with the kids as they go off to college. Right. And it's like, as soon as that distraction's gone, then it's like the pain can come back. Um, and so I think a lot of relationships, you know, familial and romantic are structured in a way that that person is like acting as some sort of weird shield. Um, and yeah, so <clears throat> that was one of the things for sure. That was a, I had to sort of extract myself from not just romantic relationships and family relationships, but friendships. It was like, I was tied into things in such a, such an unhealthy, inauthentic way. And the only way to figure out how I wanted to sort of circle back around and have relationships with anyone was to sort of be like, and you just take a break. Like, <laughs> this is gonna suck. No more. This is like, gonna suck for a while. Yeah, I just need to like be by myself and like cry in a fetal position on the floor for so, seven months. So are you willing to talk more about that period of sure. time? Yeah, let's do it. Um, yeah. So I mean, I so I did this. I from the time I was sixteen to I guess basically twenty seven. I what I call lily pad hopped from relationship to relationship. So. I would, on some level, <clears throat> understand that I was done with the relationship, but instead of leaving it and being, like, a big girl, I would just wait, basically, till I found someone else that was worthwhile and sort of just jump over to them. So I ended up avoiding, I think, a lot of the grief um, in ending the previous relationship and also not examining what the problems were with that relationship. Um, because I had this new relationship. It was this distraction. I'm fine now. I'm so excited for my new life. Like, yeah, don't. a new, it's so weird how a new relationship can be the opposite of grieving an old relationship. Yeah. Like if there is an opposite feeling to relationships, yeah. it seems that it's, it's grief and new love. Totally. I agree. Uh, it's a wonderful distraction, which is why it was my drug of choice. Um, so I was married and, uh, I, you know, there's this thing that I talk about sometimes, it's hard to describe, but I'm sure you'll know what I mean, where it's like, if you're in a bad relationship or a bad situation, there was never, I was never totally unaware of that. There was always like a little, like, it was like this little thread or this little like bird that was like quiet, but it's like, I always saw it there. It's like, you have a floater in your eye or something. It's like, <laughs> it's like, I can ignore that, but like. It's definitely fucking there. (laughs) And you can't really, like, you can't really touch it or feel it or relate to it in any sort of a, like, awake, conscious way. But it's, like, always there. It's it's there right when you go to sleep or when you wake up. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the landing pad and you take off. And, like, right when you soften enough, it just starts to flood in. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So. I I don't know nothing about that. (laughs) Right. So that was always there in terms of, like, yo, you're living the wrong life. Like everything about this is wrong. But for many reasons, I was terrified of being alone. I didn't know who I was. Like I just clung to partnership as some sort of lifeboat basically. Um, so I think on that level, I, I knew the relationship I was in for most of my twenties was not right. Um, but I sort of very strategically carefully avoided that fact And then I um, met someone at a work conference and had no intention of 
Like I wasn't look. I wasn't like I'm so unhappy. I want to fuck someone else. Like that was not what was going on. Like someone just appeared in my life, and I was like, whoa. Like what's going? Like why do I feel this toward this person? I'm fascinated by them. Like I want to spend time with them. I don't know if it means I want to sleep with them or just want to be their friend or just because I want to be them. Like I don't even know what this is, but I just feel so felt like some magnetic pull. Uh, anyway, so I totally slept with them <laughs> and, um, <laughs> turns out I did just want to fuck. Yeah. Well, uh, and, um, and I, you know, once that happened, I was never, I don't think I'm the type of person that could ever maintain an affair. I could never like cheat on someone and actively lie. So once that happened, it was just like everything shattered. Um, I was sort of forced to be like, okay why did I do this? Like, what was wrong with the situation I was in? I have to get out of the situation I was in. How do I do that? I married, I own a home with this person. We just renovated it. We got married only seven months prior. Um, so that was a nightmare. Um, and what I realized was like, I decided I was going to leave my marriage and very quickly recognized that I was, um, I was going through a pattern. It was like, oh, wait, okay, you did this at 22. This, like, you meet someone else, leave them. And I, like, met this other person. And I, I, I thought to myself, like, I can't leave my ex-husband or I can't leave my husband for this person. But, but it was like, Anya, that's exactly what you're doing. Um, so, and simultaneous to that, I'd had a lot of, like, health issues that I'd been struggling with for a good portion of my 20s that at this point for multiple reasons, both because I decided to do like really intense parasite detoxes coupled with extreme emotional stress and anxiety. Never trust the hippies. Dude, holy <laughs> shit. I'm like, yeah. Don't trust the vegans. So I got like extremely sick, basically, to the point where I stopped seeing the other dude, the new dude. So I was, like, doing this weird thing where I was, like, simultaneously grieving the loss of two people, moving out of my house. I had to move in with my mom because I didn't really have anywhere to go. My ex-husband didn't want to leave our house, even though I was the one that worked from home. And, like, we basically built the home to accommodate my my job at the time. He was just like, no. So I moved in with my mom and uh, basically came face to face with my entire childhood. Um which was fascinating. Like I would, I would, not, I would say, don't move back in with your parents. But if you want to like understand yourself in your life, <laughs> if you want to go to the belly of the like, beast. Holy shit! I mean, my dad. It was great. My parents got divorced when I was five, um, so mostly. And I had good, you know, I spent good amounts of time with both of them. But I don't really remember them being married. But my dad flew out to California and stayed in my mom's house with me while I was going through this with my mom. So we'd the three of us would like sit on the bed and like I'd be sobbing and I saw this whole dynamic of like, you know, my mom doing one thing. My dad's like, "Why are you saying that?" And my mom's like, "But she needs to do this." I was like, "Oh my god, I'm six! Like this is incredible." Um, so I uh, I needed to get out of there as quickly as possible, and I moved into an apartment. I basically lived alone for the first time ever in my life, and spent the next basically like seven months to almost two years dependent on like what you calculate as the time um just like doing the deepest dive possible into my own psyche and removing myself from basically everything uh 
because I, it's like I couldn't hear, hear anything. I couldn't, you know, I don't, it's like, I don't know if I'm doing this because my mother wants me to, or because this friend wants me to, or because this person I want to have sex with wants me to. It was like, I don't know who I am. Like, this is fucked up. And, uh, I, you know, I, I feel in many ways, I feel like I didn't have a choice, but to go through all of that. But I also know that I really dedicated myself to it and like was going to therapy three times a week and, um, you know, writing and I like learned astrology and like developed a spiritual practice and, you know, traveled by myself and, uh, sort of my personality, like, Oh, how do I do the most of this thing? <laughs> like, I never do anything half-assed. So I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Right. Um, so yeah, that was that period of time. And it was, it felt like, I mean, basically like a death. Yeah. Like, I don't know how it was like I, my life before that and my life after that. Do sure. you, do you, I commend you for meeting that head on. Uh, most people don't. Did you have a set of practices that you knew you needed to engage in? Did you go about it in your methodical way? Because I've, I've hung out with you a bit and I see your love of spreadsheets. <laughs> this is a joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, did you actually yeah. approach it from uh, almost like an athletic place? Like, okay, I need to do these things. I, I need to do this work to... Right make it out the other end in some ways you know i think part of what the experience was was deciding and learning for the first time like what type of person am i am i like am i sort of you know do i have a routine is that the type of person or do i not like i didn't know do i wash the dishes at night or in the morning like i don't know the answer to any of these questions like do i wear the short sleeve shirt or the long sleeve shirt do i shave my armpits or not it was like i had i didn't know um so there were different times in which i was like okay i think the answer is that like every day i like wake up i'm gonna do like i'm gonna drink fresh juice and meditate and do qigong and like i had this whole thing and that didn't really feel right. So then I like try this other thing and try something else. Um, so I would say I was methodical and diligent in trying things to see what resonated. I think the, I would say like the, the thing that helped the most or felt the most resonant with me was therapy. And this is coming from someone also that's like been in and out of therapy my whole life. I never really understood it. I don't think I knew what it was doing or what it should be doing, but I also don't think I was ready, you know? Um, and my dad said this really awesome thing to me before I went. He was like, first of all, I'll help you pay for this and you need to go three times a week. Like you cannot go once a week. Going to therapy once a week is like you're just updating them on your life and then you have to leave. Like in order to really dig into this stuff, you need to go more. So I was going three times a week and he said, and also you know, you're really smart and really intelligent and you've made it this far. <laughs> hey, you're smart and intelligent. <laughs> yeah. You've made it this far in, um, lying to yourself and others. So it would be my, my best advice was, would be to like, he's like, and I've done this. I've gone into therapy and like said like, Hey, I'm going to lie to you. I'm going to pretend because, you know, we don't want to face our shit. We want to, 
act as if we have everything under control and this is the right relationship for me and no this job isn't you know wearing me out and when you're smart and intelligent you can talk circles around basically anybody and a therapist isn't the th it's not the therapist's job to be like you're full of shit right like they're there to like help you make these realizations yourself but you have to participate um you could argue that a good therapist <clears throat> is there to tell you you're full of shit well but they you know I would say that maybe, but if you're not ready to understand, if you're not ready to accept that you're full of shit, someone telling you you're full of shit is just going to make you walk out the room and never come back. Right. So like, is it more beneficial to sit there with that person and get them closer to the place where they will realize for themselves that they're full of shit or tell them you're wrong and have them never come back, you know? I mean, people do that all. I would say probably 90% of therapy is therapists listening to people who are full of shit and not telling them they're full of shit. Um, so I just went into this therapist and I was like, look, this is the situation. Like, I need you to be straight with me. Please don't protect me. But like, I'm ready for this. I'm here for this. I'm going to try my best not to lie and not to pretend, but sometimes I probably won't know. Um, and like, I really want to make this worthwhile. I'm spending a shit ton of money and I want to, I want to make it worth it. Um, so, so the therapy, like the self realization, the self awareness of recognizing who I was and why I was that way and why I, I mean, like what I said at the beginning, like being able to trace back nearly all of myself to situations or, or events in the past, I can do that pretty easily now. Like anytime I have an insecurity or a fear or, uh, especially one that keeps happening over and over again, it's like, Oh, right. That's this, that's this thing is that, mm. that, that came from that. So only then were you able to change your behavior. Right. And that's still hard, right? Like, I mean, I ended up going back and spending time with that guy who I'd met who sort of extracted me from my marriage. And that was really hard because while I was sort of simultaneously gaining all this insight about myself and my behaviors and my patterns, it was playing out in real time with this guy. And that was disturbing. <laughs> like I've seen this movie before. Yeah. It was like both things sort of caught up to each other in a way where it was like, I was too smart to deny mm. the reality like at that what? point. <sighs> you know, like I was in a, again, in a situation that wasn't aligned and this person wasn't trustworthy and I was sacrificing my own needs to be with them basically. Uh, and that was happening in multiple different ways. It was just not, Right. And there were many things about it that were right. I mean, there were the reason it le made me leave my marriage because I actually found a lot of things with this person that I realized I needed and wanted and hadn't didn't have. And I, I recognize what type of relationship I wanted to be in, but had to come to terms with the fact that this person wasn't the person I was going to do that with. And there was a lot of, <clears throat> you know, the other big thing I think I gained insight about was psychological projection. Um, so I was projecting, I think I did that a lot. It'd be like, this is the relationship I want. And I'm just going to pretend like you're the person <laughs> that I'm going to have it with. But if I'm being real, I can see that there's like 9 million red flags, you know? You ever see Californication? 
I like bits and pieces. Ah, it's great. It's great yeah. series. The early, ep- the early episodes were wonderful, but, uh, Hank Moody's wife at one point has this line where she says, you're not in love with me. You're in love with the idea of me. Totally. Yeah. That's, I mean, not only is that super prevalent and common, but it's like enforced by our culture and society in such an intense, intense way. I mean, my friend Aaron and I have this podcast horror report and we just did this whole episode about romance and, you know, how so much of what we think is love is just this bizarre sort of curated lie, you know? Um, and that's, you know, and, and at the same time though, it's like when you meet someone, especially at the beginning, there's a, there's a real true sense of total like euphoria and, you know, quote unquote love falling in love, whatever that is. So there's no point in like denying that that exists. I think it's just important to be realistic about what it is. Right. You know? Yeah. And notice it as a feeling. Like yeah. we, ugh, fucking great point because when we're afraid of something, we're taught to notice it just as a feeling or energy pattern through our body to try and overcome that fear because it's, it's only as real as you make it. Yeah. I'm, most fear. Not all fear. Sometimes it's warranted, but many times it's not. We don't tend to put that same emphasis on falling in love. Are you really falling in love? Yeah. Are you? Or are you just have crazy dopamine rushes that yeah. are swirling around your head and making you horny, thinking yeah. that you should go move to Oshkosh, Wisconsin with this guy and become a barista because you love him and you're meant to be together. Totally. 100%. Right. It's like holding both things at the same time. Um, and that's, you know, the, there's a certain fun and, you know, sort of like utopian sense of, it's like sort of like you're just being like astral projected into another domain when you're sort of in that like total, like love, everything's amazing type of space. And, you know, you kind of, we want to stay there cause that feels good, you know, but you know, and, and you can, you can be there. I'm not saying you have to not feel that way, but it has to coincide with reality and with asking questions, both of yourself and of your partner and testing things out, you know, like, are you really who I think you are? And is this, do we really want the same things in life? And then, you know, I think a big problem that I definitely did and that I see especially with women is this, there's like two things going on. I think women especially are afraid to ask questions um, because I think they're coming from a place of like a lack of self-worth and a fear, which is understandable. Like to be asking questions is vulnerable. And I don't think we've had a lot of great experiences as women being vulnerable. It's easy to take advantage of a vulnerable person. Um, So there's like, I'm not confident enough to even ask the question, but then simultaneous to that, I think is this weird projection codependency thing going on where not only are we afraid to ask the question, but we also don't ask it because we're, we know the answer isn't what we're going to want to hear. Right. Right. So it's like, Oh, I really like having sex with this person. They're really cool. I have this whole vision of our future together. So I'm not really going to ask them like, if they want a relationship or what kind of future they want. Because if I do and they say, yeah, sorry, that those are none of the things I want, 
it becomes a lot harder to lie to yourself, you know? Yeah, it becomes harder the deeper into it you get. The more invested you get in a relationship, all of a sudden those questions become impossible and you have these big no-go zones in the whole relationship. And you both know that it's there, but you just decide not to look at the elephant in the room. Totally, yeah. And I I mean, I definitely did that and maybe it's my own projection, but like when I when I see people, especially women, just because I feel like I relate to women, I understand women doing that. I just like, oh, like either you're going to hurt yourself. I'm going to hurt you. Someone's going to hurt. Like this is, this is bound for disaster. It's like being a football player practicing for a big game and realizing that your right ankle is really sore and deciding not to think about the right ankle or or maybe putting a brace on it or working to strengthen the right ankle and just ignoring it and hoping for the best until game day. Totally. It's weird how we do that. We're like we'll see this this cliff uh that we're heading towards and that could be an event that I mean we just do it with procrastination like not even in relationships <laughs> yeah, totally. but like not prepping for a speech. And you know that date's coming, and there's going to be people there, and either you're going to practice or not. And it, you, can, you can have this belief that's so false that you'll rise to the occasion. Yeah. <laughs> it's the worst advice ever. Yeah. People yeah. so rarely rise to the occasion, they fall back on their practice. Yeah. And, yeah, people do it with athletics, uh, intellectual pursuits, and most of all relationships for sure. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I, this whole concept, people say like relationships are work. Right. And I think there's, um, people wildly misunderstand what that means. I think people think they make excuses for their shitty relationship and like, well, relationships are work. You know, we got to like <laughs> compromise and sacrifice and like everything sucks. You know, that's not the right type of work. Um, but good relationships. And I think alignment in general is hard because, you know, when you're, when you're not working or trying, you're just playing it safe and playing it safe is, you know, it's easy. It's like, you don't really have to be triggered or challenged or you don't have to come confront your fears or anything like that. Um, but I think that like any of the, you know, we have to, life should be, I think, sort of challenging at like that to me feels, you know, I don't have any obvious, you know, definitive answers of like what the meaning or purpose of life is. I just sort of see it as like, okay, let's say that I'm some sort of like spiritual being and I'm supposed to go to like from A to B. Like I'm going to make it to from to like A.02 maybe in this lifetime. You know, like I don't need to get to B, but like I'm going to try and get there. I'm going to move in that direction. And that to me feels, you can't, do that if you don't, if you're not intentional about it. And being intentional means you like, you know, you push up against what you're afraid of and you push up against what scares you and what triggers you. And it doesn't mean you, you know, abuse yourself, but if you're not like pushing the limits. Maybe you know? the misunderstanding about relationships being work is people, people think, uh, it's work on changing themselves mm. versus work relating with the other person and talking about how they want to relate yeah. 
you know, when this situation happens, right? When you get home and then and you just walk right by me and don't say hello, it makes me feel this way. Is that a primary part of your character that you are unwilling to shift? Or is that a little behavior trait that you'd be willing to shift that would make me feel more seen? Right. And if that, if that person's like, yeah, I could never come home and say hello to you and give you a kiss. That is just not part of my genetic makeup. Then you have your answer right there. Right. But if it's, oh, I just had no idea that that was important to you or you were aware of that or that, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to shift that. Right. And then all of a sudden you get closer, right? Right. That's, that's healthy work. Right. And the work is also the person who's not being said hello to being vulnerable enough to bring it up in the first place, right? <sighs> but you should know what I'm feeling all the time. <laughs> yeah. And that's normally the thing. It's like we assume that someone – I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me in both directions, right? And this, in a healthy, good relationship, like – I have an assumption about what that behavior that you just did means or vice versa. I did this thing and you interpret it as whatever. And we could just not say anything about it and just be hurt and carry it with us into the future and assume that every other behavior that looks like that means the same thing. Or we could bring it up and the other person might be like, whoa, fuck, you're right. that isn't what I meant. Like that isn't the right interpretation, but I totally understand why you'd feel that way. And what can I do to make sure that doesn't happen again, or at least do my very best. And that, you know, that leads to a, a hundred things, like including confronting your own, like maybe that person's behavior was super innocent, but it totally triggered you in regard to your abandonment issues. Right. And if you just stay silent and just like swallow that, you're not healing anything, you know, <laughs> you're just perpetuating it. So to talk about it with someone and to realize like, yeah, sure. Okay. Maybe they need to adjust their behavior, but also like, whoa, fuck, I've got these, like, I've got these trust issues that don't necessarily have anything to do with you. They're just coming from this other place. And I need to hopefully relationships should be about healing that stuff. You know, there's some quote about like, we're damaged in relationships and we need to heal in relationship. Like if you don't retrain yourself in that same context, uh, it's pretty hard to heal. Yeah. Most of us are really poorly trained too. Yeah. For How sure. much do you think you have, uh, I, I think that people d tend to, uh, see training in the negative like I'm me, I don't want to be trained. It's it put makes them feel like they're dogs. But with jobs, we have job training, right? right. There are ways yeah. to there are ways to uh, complete a task or operate in the world that are better than others. Yeah. And you know, like I would argue that uh, if you're in a relationship where there's domestic violence like across the board that's just a bad thing and we should be trained out of hitting each other when we have a problem with each other yeah but it's like the concept of training and the concept of therapy is something that a lot of people have issues with because they don't like the the yeah the idea of shifting behavior to become better i think honestly I would guess that most of that is because they don't want to confront the grief around why they're doing that in the first place. So 
I had to come to the recognition and realization that like, I didn't actually know how to love or be loved. Like the way that I was trained in love was very like codependent and transactional and emotionally unavailable. And in order to not do that anymore, I had to come to terms with the fact that I was doing it in the first place. And if I was doing it in the first place, what did that say about my relationship with my parents or my relationship with the people I was engaged in romantically before? That shit's hard and sad as fuck, you know? Like, you don't want to believe that anybody hurt you, even if it was unintentional. That's, especially as a kid, like, and I don't think our, for the most part, at least certainly not in my case, like, my parents were absolutely not intending to hurt me. They were learning the same bullshit that they were passing on to me, you know? Like, I don't blame them. But the point was that I grew up with a lot of unhealthy um, understanding about what love looked like and felt like. What, what's your theory about modern civilization uh, being a, a response to not going through a grieving process? Oh, God. Like, all of it. Tell I've... me about this theory. I've heard you talk about it before. <sighs> well... I mean, I think basically life now, and I think we're seeing that a lot during this pandemic, I think we are perpetually distracted um, by, you know, if we and control, right? Perpetually distracted and uh, believe that we control things. So if I can go to my job and I can get married and have this ring on my finger and live in this house and have these kids and put food on the table and speak intelligently and get a degree. And like, those are all sort of lies and distractions, I think, from what's beneath all of that, which is like, who are we? Who do we want to be? What's our th authentic purpose in this life? Um, so there's that. I think it's like we're, you know, and we think we can, we think we have control over all of these things. I think why my experience that I went through was so painful was because what I thought I had control over was sort of ripped out from under me. Like, okay, if you can't work because you're sick, if you can't pretend you're happy through these sort of surface level, superficial expressions, now what do you do? Like, I remember asking myself, like, if I lost an arm, would I still love myself? And the answer was like, absolutely not. It was like, I'm totally valuing my self-worth on these like totally external, cultural, culturally acceptable forms of value. Um, and I think grief and pain triggers other people's grief and pain. Um, so like, for example, Gavor Mate, who I love, talks about this experience of bringing like basically a truckload of like empirical data and research proving that so many physical health issues are caused by or at least provoke you know provoked or added to through early childhood trauma um and that he presented this work in in a room full of professional medical psychological doctors like really respectable people who basically looked at him stunned and unable like they didn't know what to do with the information and i think the reason that they did that was because it it's self-implicating like, oh wait, okay. So what about my like lifelong autoimmune condition or like, 
you know, what about the trauma we're causing prisoners in prisons? Like, you know, if we accepted these facts, we simply wouldn't be able to engage in the type of like culturally acceptable practices that we do today in regard to the way we raise our kids, the way we expect people to work ridiculous amount jobs and not pay them, the way we treat and raise our children, public schools. I mean, everything is, is pretty much fucked up. Yeah. Well, we, the, when people ex experience these higher states of consciousness and they talk about the oneness and the self falling away, um, when you are grieving, you're also grieving all of those other people. Totally. Yeah. And whoo, fuck that shit. Yeah. And like, and I mean, what I said before around, like, I felt like my pain was more than just my own that related, not just to other people, but also the planet. And like the last thing, whatever the elite wants us to do is like, give enough of a shit about the planet that we actually make a difference. But it was like, I can no longer separate my own suffering from the suffering of like the ground I'm standing on. It was just like, everything was so interconnected. Um, and, uh, I haven't spoken really to anyone who's been through a similar experience who hasn't felt the same way. It's like, you know, I think also I, I always like in grief to, I think what most people experience on psychedelics, like it is yet another way that just our world can be totally deconstructed and it shows itself to us in its true form. There's just no, you can't deny that feeling when you're going through it. Um, so like the world is trying to prevent us from using psychedelic psychedelics, in some sort of like therapeutic medicinal way. I think they're simultaneously trying to keep us from grieving because I, I think that it manifests in a similar, like awakened state of being. Hmm. Do you think that you can simultaneously be productive and creating and continuing on uh, really well with a, a career and also go do that, that deep grieving work? I'll, I'll just give you some examples. Like I run into people who uh, are hyper productive, quote unquote successful, don't want to look at their own shit and it's yikes, it's unhealthy. I also meet people who can't stop doing the work and they let it consume their lives and they tend to be, you know, upper middle class and love yoga and just have too much fucking time on their hands and they feel like their self is their project and they can't get out and do real work until they're finished with that grieving process. Right. Well, I would probably say in the for the people in the latter category, they're not actually doing the work. They're avoiding it. You know, that's like, you know, like, oh, it's the same as like, I'm a vegetarian, so I don't need to think about this anymore. Like, I'm just like, <laughs> that's how, that's it. Like the answer, I'm done, like check, done, moving on. Um, I think it, like everything, if it's not a process, if things aren't like changing and evolving, yeah, there's a problem. I think when I first was in this state, I couldn't do much of anything. And I, oh, I, I felt really grateful that I didn't have like a nine to five job that I had to go to, but the, the job career, whatever that I was doing at the time, it was part of this, like, that's not me. I can't, that's, I cannot do that anymore, you know? And it was a privileged position to not have 
to, right? I had enough money saved up to where I could like make a transition in my career so that I didn't have to keep doing that. Um, and so my sort of creative output took on much different and more authentic forms. Like it was within that period of time that I started my podcast. I wrote shit tons of poetry. Like I felt creatively like keyed in, like I was channeling shit more than I ever have been before. Uh, I was also horrifically sad and, um, not ever depressed though. You know, like that's another misconception is that grief is depression. There's this great quote that I love. That's, uh, like the griever isn't depressed. Um, depression comes from an inability to grieve. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. And I think there's a, I think there's two things that people categories that people fall into, um, either grandiosity, which is like overperformance and perfectionism and success or depression. And both of those things are escapes from the self and from authenticity and from pain and sorrow and suffering. Um, drama of the gifted child is a fucking amazing book. That's no, I just of, got it. Yeah. 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 It's on my Kindle. <laughs> it's going to fuck you up. Oh boy. <laughs> I, I haven't started because it feels so pretentious to open up. Yeah. Well, it's, Oh, drama. Uh, oh, I, I just, I, yeah. I picture my, my hand going on my forehead and saying, Oh, I'm so gifted. Yeah. Well, it's like, but that's, what's so fascinating about it is it actually tears that down. It's like, there's this other thing I thought about during all of this was like my form of coping was strategy. Like I'm brilliant because I had to be to survive. Like I had to think, I had to like learn how to interact with people and sense people's moods and distract myself and come up with imaginary worlds. Like I had to do all of that because that was my coping mechanism. So like, Oh, why do you have such great interpersonal skills? It was like, Oh, because I had to like navigate emotionally abusive people when I was young. Um, so it sort of like tears you down from thinking that your success or your ability to achieve things is actually positive. <laughs> um, I, you know, now I've come through the process to where I can engage in those things without them coming from an unhealthy mm -hmm. place. Um, but I think it's a very sort of creative thing that us grandiose people do, which is to think that because we're doing shit, it means we're okay. Right. And in fact, it's maybe exactly the same as we're, a depressed person. So now what, how has that work translated into your external life? What is the goal of your podcast and writing and what are you doing now? And the, what are the points that you're trying to make to society? Um, I guess basically it could all be boiled down to like, I think the problem with our entire world, maybe this is overly simplistic, is that we're not taught how to be authentic and, um, authenticity for those who aren't authentic is very threatening. So I guess the, literally the only thing, my only purpose or like goal is to be the most authentic version of myself as I can be. So that means finding ways to, let's say, make money or do things in the world that are very aligned with who I am and what feels natural. So starting the podcast, like I, I absolutely felt like 
I have so much to say. I always have. I've always been super opinionated. I'm always saying things that no one else wants to say. I always ask questions that nobody seems brave enough to ask. People would always say like, I don't have the balls to say what you're saying, but I really appreciate that you do. And I was like, okay, so I've got these theoretic, these figurative balls. Like, what am I going to do with that? You know? So I wanted to start the podcast because I wanted to do it, period. I wasn't trying to make money. I didn't really care if it was successful. I didn't, I wasn't managing or monitoring numbers. It was like, I would do this if I was talking to like two people. Okay. So what, so what do you, what do you want to ask that other people won't ask? I'm scared. What are those questions? (laughs) What can't we ask on you? Well, what are you talking about? I guess like when I started the podcast, it was during the, I mean, I think we talked about this last time. Me too movement. movement. Yeah. When I was like, "Uh, I feel like there's other shit going on here. Like, what's up with these, like, victimized women? And are they really pretending as if they haven't ever manipulated anyone or walked into something or participated in an unhealthy dynamic? I don't know. So that was one big thing. Um, But again, questions about, like, grief and um, questions about relationships, about monogamy, about sexuality. Like, I mean, that was... That's sort of always been my thing. I've always been fascinated by sexuality and gender. Um, And, uh, you know, I'd be at like, I always tell this story, like I'd be like a, you know, 18, 19 year old kid. My parents would take me to some party with a bunch of adults and, oh, what are you studying in school? And I was like, oh, gender and sexuality. And they'd be like, oh, like, so like how, like how to have sex. I'm just like, okay. First of all, you're an at like how is this possible? You're an adult. And I was like, no, actually that like all of what you think is natural about relationships and sexuality is a social construction. And these like adults would just be like, Yeah, okay, kid, you know, and like walk away. Um, and that beat me down for a long time. I was like, Okay, I'm this way, I think these things, and there's legitimately no place for me in this world. I better like get married and live a normal life, which didn't work out. Um So, yeah, I guess, I mean, to go back to your original question, it was like, I I feel like the thing that we will be most successful at in life is the thing that is the most authentic to us. Hmm. Um, How do you define authenticity? Using this word a lot, throwing around. Well, I don't know what it means. (laughs) Sounds like hippies use it. Yeah. You're well, killing the word. So it's been I, killed. Maybe. I think it's been killed maybe, already. Maybe. I do wish there was more. I, I also like crave uh, I just, word. Yeah, I know. Like give me some concrete examples of this. Because yeah. people are thinking, like, what's my authentic life? I want to live it, but I, I don't know what that even means. And yeah. I like Snickers. Are those authentic to me? <laughs> yeah, well, it takes a lot of self-questioning, I think. And I actually don't think that again, I think that's like the B. Like I don't know if we ever totally get there. It's a very intuitive, I would say intuitive process. And I think intuition is yet another thing that we're not taught and don't like intuition is that floater in my eye that <laughs> I, like I that. That, was a good one. that I'm not touching, you know? Um, if I could get better in touch with that thing, if I could see that more clearly, if I could bring that into focus more, that's in my, that's how I find authenticity who I feel like any, yeah. More close to the mic. Oh, sorry. You're good. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So, I guess someone said something to me at the beginning of all of this. This was before I figured out what, who I was or who I wanted to be. I knew that what I was doing wasn't right, uh, but I didn't know where I was going. And this woman said to me, like, well, maybe you don't know 
maybe you can't figure out what you want to do in the world or, or who you are just because like you haven't invented it yet. So if we're looking at like, oh, okay, like I see that person with a podcast, they're really cool. Like I kind of want to do something like that. Likely that isn't what you're supposed to be doing. Maybe there's a version of that that's you, right? Um, I think there's a, like, I don't think I could have quote unquote been authentic until I was ready to be. So, and I still don't really know what that is. Like at the moment, it feels like I like to talk. I'm opinionated. I feel very comfortable talking in front of people. Um, I like to write. I love the outdoors and community and um, having friends and people in my life that are very open about issues, especially around like intimacy and sexuality. Um, So like, I want to buy land and create some sort of community where I can live among, like, because that's what I like the most. Right. Uh, I don't know where exactly, I didn't know where that was going to go. It was this other thing I think I told you the other day. Someone said, I, when I started to have more ideas about what, what I wanted to do, I was like, I'm going to buy a bunch of acres. I'm going to create this like healing center. We're going to have like retreats and like educational things. And a bunch of us are going to live there and like had very specific plans. And I'm going to do it with these people. And this is what it's going to look like. And he said, look, like not to be patronizing, like, but, um, he's like, I've, I've heard a hundred people have a very similar idea to this. And to be honest, I've only been talking to you 45 minutes, but if I believed anyone was going to do it, it'd probably be you. Like I could totally do this if you want to. <laughs> However, at the time I was like 28, 29. However, you're young and I don't want you to limit the breadth of possibility by being so fucking specific. So instead of having this goal in mind of like what your purpose is, why don't you just embrace or feel into what the energy of that thing is? Oh, that's good. And follow the energy. Because if you do that, it's like something might, if you were too specific and you had these blinders on of like, no, this is my path to this thing, you know, you're not going to understand when something comes into your orbit that might be the path to that because you were too stubborn about what you thought the path would be, right? Yeah, you don't want to be myopic. You can miss it. <laughs> if you're too specific about the medium, of your message, you can miss big opportunities. Yeah. If you're like, I'm a filmmaker, I'm going to get it out in film. And then right. someone's like, no, like, but you should do a podcast instead. Right. And the, and the thing too, like the podcast and I always, I always actually approached my career in this way. Like I didn't start a podcast because I thought my authentic identity was to start a podcast. It just felt aligned with the energy of what I wanted to do and felt like of a logical, intuitive step toward other shit. You yeah. know, I want to meet, like at first I was, my p- initial plan was like, I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to meet these people in grad school. I'm going to have a credential so that later when I have to spend a bunch of money on this land, I'm going to have connections and people that are going to want to invest in this. Right. The podcast thing worked. The grad school thing I dumped because other shit came into my orbit. That was like, I could do that same thing way easier and for a lot less money. Um, so this will, you know, this project might, disappear at some point and that's i don't need to feel badly about that like that was just what was aligned for me at the time that it existed um i mean i think i'm really keen on answering this question though about authenticity because i agree it's so overused and 
misunderstood. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it's really about like intuition. I think we all have those floaters. Um, I think we all know something's not certainly not right. If we, if we don't know what's right, we know it's not right. Um, and I think we work as hard as we can often to not take the path of like courage or bravery toward our own personal truth. I also though think that you can start side projects that are aligned with your thing that you're psyched on. It's easy to go overboard on your quote unquote passion and try and make it your job. And there's no market for it. Totally. And that ends in homelessness. Yes. And I, so I, I think everyone should start a podcast. <laughs> I don't think everyone should quit their day job yeah. to do a podcast, right. but I mean, for me, like I do lots of things and the podcast, totally. right? But it feeds my soul in a way. Like you and I were geeking out the other day about how cool it is to conduct an interview. It was a great conversation. Oh, I felt yeah. like so lit up. I yeah, <laughs> like, no one gets yeah, it. It's, it's like, so fun. It's this fucking creative project. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Was, yeah. yeah and I uh, when I started mine four years ago, I thought, oh, this is fun. Yeah, and and I didn't think the word authenticity, but I thought this is cool. I like yeah. doing this. I'm good at it. I want to do it more. And uh, you can follow those and then try and make more and more room for those projects in your <clears throat> life day by day. Totally. You don't want to overcorrect yeah. though. Like my point in this is yes. that like I've done ayahuasca yeah. <laughs> and thought some crazy ideas about things I wanted to do in my life, and yeah. then like. A week later, thought, yeah, that was, that was a bad idea. Probably, should, probably shouldn't. <laughs> it's like that scene in, uh, in Wedding Crashers when she's like, Shlomo, I thought you were renouncing all your possessions and moving to Nepal. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And he's like, oh, sorry, Shlomo. Shlomo is now uh, deaf and can't speak. He's a mute. And she's yeah. like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I do. Yeah. I. You know, it's such a nuanced issue. Like, you can... You know, I see people who are like, okay, I want to start my own, you know, like dog grooming business and I want to buy a van and I'm going to like outfit it and I'm going to like, I'm going to go around and be a mobile dog groomer. I'm thinking of Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> Harry and Lloyd have, oh, have yeah. the dog yeah. grooming van. Yeah, exactly. So like, okay, so that's my vision, right? I can work for myself. I can make my own hours. I amazing, but I need money and I need train. Like I've never done this before. So, okay. So in the meantime, I'm going to go get a job at the pet smart or whatever. And I'm going to learn how to be a dog groomer at the pet smart. And maybe I can even strategically like make contact with some of my future customers, you know? So like, that's a very good example of like, you can't do the van thing quite yet. You need the training and the contacts and the wherewithal. So, okay, get your job at the pet smart. But how many people just are like, but I'm kind of afraid to do the dog thing by myself. Like I'm kind of afraid to fulfill my purpose and do really what I love. I don't know if, you know, I have all these issues of deserving it. And so they just fucking stay at the pet smart being paid $12 an hour. Right. Um, or someone that's like, yeah, like I want to do something meaningful in my life. So I need to get a side gig in order to do that because I can't do it for free. We have to make money. We have to survive. Um, like, and that's a, it's such a good example of, I feel like, like the lies we tell ourselves and our, and our therapists, you know, like, oh no, but I'm doing this because of that. Like, you know, this is just where I am right now. It's like, there's always a way to lie 
about the purpose of what you're doing. So yeah, like I, before this life that I'm living, I was working, I had a health and wellness blog and I was doing like content development for natural products brands. And I couldn't just leave the natural products. Like that was my livelihood. That's how I made money. I knew that the podcast wasn't going to make me money, at least not a lot of it anytime soon. So I had to continue taking photographs of food for a while um, while the podcast got built up. But I wasn't using the content development for the brands to keep me from starting the podcast, right. you know? And, and it changes your perspective around that, the, that work. It was like, I hate this, but I'm really grateful for right. it because it's, an, it's allowing me to do the thing do I like. Do you have a lot of dudes who listen to your podcast or is it mostly women? Yes. You do. Dudes. Yeah. I think – I would say – it might be 50 50 really wow. yeah be do you give them dating advice <laughs> yeah well i think that's why i think <laughs> yeah you're like, it's kind of like oh, i want to peer in like hey how can i do better with women yeah yeah i mean i don't know about dating advice so much as that i think i really make a commitment to talk about sexuality and relationships in a really like honest way that I don't, I mean, that was another reason I wanted to start the podcast was like, right. I don't hear any women talking like this. And I know they all, I know they exist cause they fucking private message me, right. but like no one's saying it publicly. <laughs> so what are some of those, um, assumptions that you, that you think men have about women Ugh. that you would like to blast? Huh? Um, I was going to get in so much trouble, but like, I guess one of them has a lot to do with, um, like power dynamics. Uh, I think there are a lot of women that if, even if they don't know it, yeah, here's the thing I think, and this is why we get into trouble with all of this. Like the way that I always saw it was like, <laughs> I'm this powerful, right? Like I'm on, <clears throat> let's say six, like I am not looking to come down from that level. Like, do not tr try to disempower me or take me off this fucking pedestal. Like, and I'm, and maybe not six, let's just say nine. Like, I'm up there. Like, I, I'm a lot, I'm an opinionated, powerful woman. I'm not looking to come down from there. But, like, I'd really like for you to be a 10. <laughs> like, I'd really like for you to be a little above me. But I think what men don't realize is they think the only way to be dominant is to disempower a woman because they're not powerful within themselves or confident enough within themselves to actually like want to hold up a woman in her power and also be powerful if that makes any sense yeah you either uh maternalize them yes right and then think of your partner as your mom right right and or in the inverse or right? the woman thinks is, of oh, yeah of you as their daddy and you and 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 the guy thinks of his uh, girlfriend or wife as a child. Right. Yeah. Or, or, and when I actually met in the inverse is that like the woman realizes she can just run fucking circles around the dude. Like, oh yeah, you think you know what's going on? Like I was acutely aware of like all of your insecurities and everything you wanted or didn't want the moment you walked into the room. And now we're just playing this game where like the guy thinks they're so suave or whatever. And the woman's like 
dude, I can see through you. You're like just a fucking clear piece of jello, you know? Um, and I think women, I've done this too, like test dudes to like, see like, how confident are you? You know, how, if I say, you know, like how willing are you to stand up to me? How desperate are you for me? If I misbehave, if I'm a bitch, if I do something to hurt you, are, or I say like, I'm going to leave, you know, how are you going to chase after me and be like, Oh my God, I can't live without you. Or you're going to be like, okay, like go live your life. I'm like stress testing foundations. Yeah. And I think we, I think women do it very much subconsciously. I, I think, uh, I remember I used to wrestle with a dude that I was with physically wrestle. And I look back and we had a lot of this, like he didn't really know how to be powerful in the relationship without disempowering me. And I wasn't willing to be disempowered. So we would like battle almost. And I think it took the form of this physical wrestling because, um, it didn't know how else to come out or like that was the way that we were working through it. Yeah. I've heard you talk about how, uh, there's this, this situation where dudes will want to fucks a, a girl and, and woman, sorry, uh, woman. <laughs> I so, don't give a shit. Uh, you could say, bitch and, and they don't know that the woman knows that they want to fuck. Oh, and God, and yeah. you're like, we know from the moment you walk in the door. Totally. And, you know, the the question, too, of, like, you know, guys, I've gone through most of my life without being complimented or recognized, for example, for my physical appearance, which I think the reason that is is because guys think that if they say that, that I'm going to think they're just trying to fuck me or that that's a superficial compliment or... um you know, that they're just doing that because they think they're supposed to be. And yet I think if a guy is truly like, you're fucking hot. Like, I love your body. Like it makes me hungry. And I'm like, I think about it and I, you know, and, and not, or that, or that guy's like, I know, you know, how many guys just like jerk off <laughs> You're thinking about your body. It's like, especially if that guy's saying that just because it's true and honest and not because he's trying to get something from you. It's not a fucking strategic move. It's like that guy's vulnerable enough to tell you how he feels when he knows you already know, right? Like we know, we know. So you coming up to us and saying that to me just signals bravery and courage and really attractive masculinity. You know, don't don't pretend like... I always used to try to do that. I mean, I think this is why dudes listen to my podcast too. It's like, I would always say like, I talk about sex like a guy. Like, I just like, can we just bring this to the forefront? Like, even if we're not going to have sex with each other, can we just at least admit we've thought about it? Maybe a lot, like maybe in a different circumstance we would, or, um, you know, we just think about these things all the time. I just wish these conversations were more prevalent. And I really, really wish that guys were, more direct and vulnerable, especially in their curiosity. Um, and really, you know, I was referencing something this morning where Bill Maher was on Joe Rogan and Bill Maher said something like, he just thought it was so insane that anyone would ever think that women like to be 
degraded, like even in a, you know, in a healthy, conscious, intentional relationship or environment or like rape fantasies. It's a myth. Like no woman wants to be choked or slapped or any of this shit. And you know what I think Bill Maher and, and Joe Rogan's agreeing. And yes, of course, no, I could never call a woman a, a bitch in a sexual context, all this stuff. I don't know any woman who doesn't want these. Like literally, I don't know any woman who isn't into this stuff. Maybe one percent. Um, and even then it's like, are they really not into it? Or are they just sort of like ashamed and culturally conditioned to believe that that can exist in a healthy, conscious, intentional way? And I think it's like these dudes, I sort of feel like, I think what you think you're doing is standing up for women and supporting women. But what about all the women who do want that stuff, who do like it? You're basically shaming them. Like how could anyone, right? So, and, and I think this happens because there's such a lack of communication. I think the guys that women want to be with are actually the most vulnerable and the most willing to look stupid because they, they're curious and curiosity is vulnerable, right? If you, it's like the same with the women. You ask the question, you're afraid of the answer. But if the guys are not asking the question, how are you ever going to know? You just don't know. And then you guess and you might guess wrong and you think you're hot and doing the right thing and don't understand why you're not getting laid. So let's talk more about that. Your whole podcast is called The Whore Rapport. And you uh, – I'm putting words in your mouth here but want to alleviate shame from the word whore. Uh, tell me more about th- that. Um, yeah, so I guess I felt like growing up – to me, my sexuality, in a, even in a culture, in a context that was trying to make me feel bad about it and shamed for it, my sexuality actually felt like the most authentic, I mean, I use the word pure, clean part of myself. It felt like something so deep and internal and unaffected by culture or anyone. Um, and, and it also didn't mean when I say I felt, you know, I always, I always said like, I'm the most sexual person I know. I'm very embodied in my sexuality. I wasn't remotely promiscuous. I like, you know, up until my late twenties, I, I sex like three or four people. I mean, I was like totally not a quote unquote slut or whore as maybe the conventional society would deem as a slut or a whore. Um, but yet I was super sexual. I remember one of the most like defining moments of my adolescence was I was in middle school, I think hadn't had sex yet. I think like the most sexual thing I did was like make out with a boy in a closet and it was like weird and there was too much tongue and, um, <laughs> always too much tongue. Always goes like, Oh, that's my nose. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I got a fever. The only thing I I'll soothe it is more cowbell. Yeah. Oh, it was weird. I need more tongue in this closet. Um, anyway, so I got in this fight as you know, preteen girls do with a friend of mine we were competitive and uh there were insults being hurled in both directions and her sort of last hurrah like was and Anya's a slut and I remember having this like and I think a a mutual friend of ours I think somehow was triangulated and involved and said like well how is Anya a slut and this girl said like kind of flustered like because she wears spaghetti strap tank tops. And it was this weird thing of like, I feel like I'm supposed to feel insulted. I feel like you meant that as like the biggest, like 
mean thing you could possibly say. And yet I feel a sense of relief that like this thing that I feel internally is being felt by other people. There's some sort of energetic embodiment happening that is being recognized and seen. And like it, maybe I am a <clears throat> slut. Yeah. Or it was like, I mean, who, the words are, are complex, but the fact that I hadn't had sex and I wasn't promiscuous. So she's basically calling me a slut or a whore for no other reason than who, like how I embodied energy, right? Or how I thought about or felt about sex, not from a experiential way, not from like I'm actually doing something. Like, being a whore or feeling a, like a whore is not actionable necessarily this isn't correlated with behavior so much as it's an internal embodiment of of energy um and i know and have experienced a lot of women who feel very similarly and and feel this struggle between you know like identifying with something that doesn't necessarily make sense to them like, how do I feel like the most sexual person ever if it's not that I'm, if it's not because I'm having sex with a bunch of people, right? And then there are women who I know who are having sex with a ton of people, but who don't identify that way. Erin, um, who I co-host the podcast with, I think said something brilliant about this, where growing up, it was like there were girls behaving in a slutty way, but whom would get offended when you called them a slut. And yet we weren't behaving as sluts, but really wanted to be called them. Like... It was this difference of sort of identification and self-identification. Um, so, you know, and in our, we did it, we, we just released our 10th episode and uh, we decided to do like a, like what the fuck is a whore episode, like whore revisited kind of <laughs> returning to this topic because. What the fuck is a whore brought to you yeah. by Disney Channel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, we, it's a, it's a, it's a funny thing to have a podcast with your best friend about sex because you don't want to just like, I don't want to talk about myself or, or, or her sex life, you know, ad nauseum. Like I don't want to reveal things about myself. So a lot of what we talk about when we talk about whore is like this sort of philosophical, like intellectual pursuit. And Aaron sort of challenged the conversation to be like, okay, so, but what does this, how can, can we talk at all about what this looks like in a sexual context without totally revealing the inner workings of our private life and our relationships? Um, and what I sort of landed on was, you know, I was with someone uh, sexually who for the very, the first part of our relationship was like in an apartment, like mostly naked. Like we weren't out in public a lot. It was like all private. And so this person got to know me very much in like an intimate sort of, you know, both literally and figuratively naked sexual way. And then we took a trip uh, and we're with other people sort of for the first time in a, in a prolonged way. And, and he made this observation that like the person I was when I was having sex was like totally different and like antithetical to the person I was in a public space. So I was like, in public, I was like hiding and my shoulders were crunched over and I was like afraid and I was insecure. And then I would have sex and I would be like totally empowered and comfortable and embodied and calm and relaxed. And, 
to me, that's horror energy. And what I've aimed to do and what I know Erin has and a lot of other women that reach out to us or that we're friends with is like, how do we take that energy, that confidence, that like raw, ravenous, hungry, rascally, powerful as fuck woman and apply that same energy to to that woman's life in general how she interacts with her family with her friends in public in her professional career you know how can we extract that energy and put it everywhere else um and i you know it's very much about empowerment and confidence and Ironically, I think that mostly exists for women in a sexual context because going back to the very beginning of our conversation, we are inherently sexual. Mm. Um, that's, you know, of course we can be put in situations, especially like fundamentalist religious situations where there's like just layers upon layers of shame and shit to unpack. But it's the same as love. I just, I feel like even if we learned it incorrectly, we have an innate ability to love and to have sex and to eat, let's say, you know? You're talking about Bill Maher and Rogan talking about, uh, and they were discussing you know, women getting choked and wanting to be submissive. So that identity might seem antithetical to sexual confidence, yeah. submissiveness and and confidence are those antithetical or are they more closely intertwined than most dudes might expect? I think they, it, they can be, I think it's either or, and I think this exists on both sides of the spectrum, right? So a guy can behave in an aggressive, dominant, powerful way and have that be coming from a place of fear, lack of confidence and a hatred of women or from a place of empowerment confidence and a love of women i think women can want to be submissive from a place of empowerment and trust and a, a safety in relinquishing control or as a way to con to perpetuate perpetuate self-degradation so we have to be like adult enough to tell the difference not just for ourselves but in someone we're with um I think like in the sort of BDSM space, this is very uh, pre uh, prevalent. Like it's very much on the surface of like, what are your boundaries and, you know, um, what are your limits and consent and mutual, uh, you know, like we're creating this dynamic together and it's in this very contained space. And, you know, even if you don't want to engage in that uh, world necessarily, I think enacting the same types of self-aware principles to figure out the difference is really important. So, you know, I know a lot of women who have experienced both, who have, who have experienced both in terms of the submissive angle, right? Like, you know, I'm used to being the, you know, I'm used to not speaking up or being confident or uh, taking control of my own life. So I'm using these relationships to perpetuate that problem or I'm really confident and I'm really powerful. I, my masculinity is well integrated. What I need to learn is how to feel safe and how to trust and how to relinquish control and how to fucking relax. So if you can find a dynamic in which to explore that responsibly, um, 
then it's the opposite of disempowering. Mm. Are know? there any questions that you'd recommend people in relationships ask each other to be able to take those first steps without going into the red zone? Yeah, I think, like, what turns you on and why? It's a crazy question. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, like, us guys are supposed to actually, like, ask you that? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and ask yourself that. Oh, that's crazy. I just like to assume. <laughs> yeah. I, and that's, like, you know, and the other thing, too, Aaron and I were talking about this, like, curiosity can be so erotic, you know? Like, what turns you on and why, you know, if that's a safe, comfortable, aligned space, the, 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 the paths that you could go down, not just for yourself, but with your partner, it's like, who doesn't want to do that? You know, like, I remember asking a guy, I remember because this is who I am. I was like, so what are like the things that you're, that you've really wanted to do sexually that you haven't done? Cause I want to have like the best sex ever. And he's like, uh, like, first of all, couldn't answer the question. And secondly, was like, well, that's a lot of pressure. And I was just like, wait, what do you mean? Like, I'm not trying to. <laughs> I'm throwing you a softball here. Yeah, I'm like, just giving you a shot you to kidding? knock this thing out yeah. of the park. I was just like, I'm down to try whatever. Like, tr- like, like try here's, a, here's a million dollars. What do you want to do with it? Oh, it's too much pressure. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, oh, like, you still think, you know, what I meant was like, let's have the best, most honest experience we can have together not like i'm like rating you on a piece of paper or like i've had this amazing sex that i'm now going to compare you to it was so clear that his reaction to that question was coming from a place of you know a lack of confidence and intimidation and being threatened and it was like those types of things throw a wrench i think into any healthy relationship whether it's you know sexual or not um like if and there's a hundred million different ways to engage in those conversations in an erotic confident way you know you can it's the same as like the woman knows whether you want to fuck her or not it's like a woman knows if you're you know totally terrified and feeling emasculated or whether you're approaching these issues from a place of confidence and genuine curiosity because nobody Everyone wants to have the best sex ever. Like, we all want to explore this. Like, if, a, if you ask a woman, if you say what you want, first of all, you say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I want. What do you like? I don't know any woman that's going to be weirded out by that at all. They're going to probably be turned on. Um, and that's one, because you're confident and aware enough to know who you are and what you want and also to ask her what she wants. And maybe no one else has ever asked her that before. Maybe she's never had an orgasm, you know? Are you just going to guess? Are you just going to, like, she's just going to have to pretend? You know, how are you ever going to know these things if you don't talk about it? How do you couple romance with all of this? In what sense? Like, uh, if you're, you know, you're talking about these new, uh, these new, ways of interacting with each other sexually. Let's say there's a couple and they are, they're like, Oh yeah, maybe we should try out this whole like choking thing. That sounds wild. (laughs) (laughs) Could help us with our breath hold. Who knows? Yeah. How do you couple that with being courted by a man and really wanting them, or at least what men think is that women want to be swooned over and have this whole 
kind of show done by men. It's like similar to a, a male turkey, like a tom, like s- strutting up with its tail feathers out, you know, going, blah, 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 you know, that's our version uh, of it, you know, romance. So uh, what, what do you think – the question is what do you think women want in regards to romance? And what are the or, – or maybe what are misconceptions that men think women want? Yeah. Well, of course, I mean, it's hard for me to answer for all women. No, no, I'm asking you. Men. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I think, I just think honesty is really important. There's a, um, there's this account online that I follow. It's this, she's anonymous. It's uh, on Instagram, ask a sub. She's a 24 seven colored submissive woman in a relationship. 24 seven. Yeah. She doesn't get out of it. <laughs> no. I mean, she's like, this is her relationship. So. Yeah. So she's in a 24 seven do- dominant submissive relationship with a man. They live together it, and she does her best in an anonymous way to try and like inform people about what this means. And she did something recently where she had her partner come on the guy in the relationship the dom and every friday she does a q a so you can ask her a bunch of questions about her life about whatever bdsm in general and for this one day she had her dom come and you could ask him questions and uh i remember one of the questions was like how did you learn that this was something you were into And he said, like, I guess I felt like I had these tendencies in relationships in the past. I enjoyed playing around with dominance or power dynamics, but I didn't, I felt a little ashamed of it. I felt afraid of it. I didn't really know what to do with it or what it meant. And then someone told me about BDSM. And so I looked into it and I was like, holy shit, like I totally resonate with all of this. And he said, I was just like walking around for weeks with a hard on. Like it was just like so amazing. Um, We do that anyway. (laughs) But he was like, it just like, it like clicked in a way. It was like, oh, this thing that I felt intuitively called to exists and, and has words and definitions and communities around it, right? Like, and now I'm learning more about it and I'm just like, this is amazing. Um, And then he going into relationships in the future you know, there are women, there were women that felt the inverse, right? Like there's this like submissive thing that's like really appealing to me. And I'm really curious about that. And I'm really turned on by it, but I'm kind of ashamed of it or afraid that if I do this with someone, they're going to take advantage of me or hurt me, which a hundred percent can happen. But if you know things about yourself, if you're, if you do the work to learn about what you like and what turns you on, or what appeals to you and you're confident enough to be honest about that with yourself and with other people. And you're also not, you don't settle, right? You're not like, I mean, I did this. I thought the relationship that I wanted wasn't plausible. So I was like, well, I might as well sign on for something else because I'd rather have a partnership than none at all. Um, So if you're like willing to go without kind of, and like, it's better to live a true authentic life than it is to sacrifice who I am and what I want. And you're honest and you do the work to not be ashamed about it. And you approach relationships, you know, there is an energetic component. I'm not recommending anybody just make assumptions about what the other person wants, but you, you talk and you see how the dynamic exists 
both sexually and and um and outside of a sexual context and you ask someone if they like something i mean it's not that difficult you know like is it okay if i do this you know and I think there's a limit to that. I think sometimes that could be, you know, if you're constantly asking if something's okay, it becomes not very erotic, but asking at first and then what about this and how about this and you know, what do you feel? And 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 as the other the other person doing the exact same thing, like what do you feel about this or what if I, you know, and you can tell pretty early on I think if you're compatible with someone or that in that way or not. And you're going to learn with that person. I mean, I think every relationship is going to be unique and different than the one you had before because you're with a new person. Like two people create their own reality. And that's part of the fun of it, I think, is to like, it's okay if you don't know. It's okay if you've never tried it before. It's okay if you're a little intimidated by something, but you're never going to find out if you don't ask, talk about it, or try Important questions to ask. What's the Freud quote? Civilization itself is diverted sexual energy. Yeah. Is that right? Something like Something that. Like that. Yeah. I think it's really true. What are you trying to accomplish and why? How much is that repressed sexual energy? How much do you just need to... It's like asking those initial questions about your sexuality create this foundation that everything else can be built upon, including your job and your sense of self yeah athleticism for sure 100 percent. like sex and and athletics are so closely tied together in my experience like that testosterone are you having lots of good sex and like how is that propelling you forward there's this scene in uh that movie invictus uh where Matt Damon, you know invictus it's, know it's, it's, it's about I, I, yeah. r- rugby players in uh, South Africa, right when Nelson Mandela comes into power. And Nelson Mandela put a ton of emphasis on the Springboks, which were their uh, national rugby team. Mm. And Matt Damon plays the team captain of the Springboks. And it's a rare, it's a important movie because it shows that that year, depending on how the Springboks did, it could either unite the country just as apartheid was ending or result in a civil war. Right, so Nelson Mandela was putting a ton of effort and um, time and energy into making the Springboks as good of a team as they could, and people thought that he was wasting his time, but he really understood how sports can create this kind of unity. Mm. And there's this scene in it where a few days before the big uh, the big event when the Springboks are going to take on the black uh, it's the New Zealand team, you know what, what's their name? Black. Oh. Someone's screaming it out. <laughs> oh. uh, and and uh, Matt Damon's girlfriend wants to yeah. bang him, and she like reaches down and grabs his cock. He's like, "No, no, I can't, I can't." Like, it's making me angry. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> we need to save this. And that's a. I don't know if it's necessarily the most healthy thing, but it's real. Yes. Yeah. Well, we were talking about that too, about like this whole thing around channeling sexual energy into something else, because there's this feeling that you know, sexual expression is somehow like wasteful or not useful in some capacity. And like, I'm going to like, you know, not jerk off for a year because I, if I do, then I'm not going to have any energy to do anything else. Sounds like something I would do. Yeah. (laughs) 
Am I calling you out right <laughs> Yeah, I haven't done. I'm not doing that. Hell no. <laughs> jerking off's great. <laughs> Friggin' so many bad decisions are made from not jerking off. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's a, like anything else, it's nuanced. So I do think you could use sex or alcohol or drugs or porn or anything as a means by which to distract yourself or to, you know, uh, carry out some sort of addictive tendency. But there is a, a very American ideal that if you can channel that, se- it's not sexual energy, it's sexual frustration. Yeah. If you can channel sexual frustration, you'll be more productive. Right. What productive, right? It's such a fucking capitalistic. Like, yeah. Because, like, I, I don't want to come because I want to get work done. done. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's I just, don't think that's true, though. I yeah, think I don't that think if you, like, <laughs> more, more orgasms, the better. Right. That's I mean, where it, fearlessness comes through. Yeah. I just don't really believe in, like, I mean, certainly shame, but limiting, like, what was the thing I was talking about recently? How, like, desire is not pathological. You know, if we could approach our desires, and this goes into what we were talking about before, like even if they're they kind of scare us or we don't really understand them, what would happen in the world if we approached our desires with compassion and curiosity? Like how much more might we learn about ourselves and how much more would, might we, you know, love ourselves, honestly, if we just looked at you know, desire like we try to, or like, you know, a Buddhist would any sort of painful emotion or feeling like maybe I need to divert this. Maybe this is coming from an unhealthy place, but maybe not. And I, I just feel like I've learned so much about myself and become a much more informed, mature person by not shaming myself over what questions I had or what I desired. And of course this can happen not just in a sexual way, but in any sort of capacity. Like what is it about what, like the things we crave, the things we're hungry for, the things we want, doesn't, it's informative. You know, they can tell us a lot about who we are and what we're good at or what inspires us. Um, and I just, I think we're so afraid of that. We, th- we think that there's something inherently wrong with desire, uh, especially when it's sexual desire. And I, I think it's, it's a shame, you know, I think I, we've, Aaron and I have talked about this and women that we've spoken to, like feeling desired by a man is, is like how they would define their sexuality. You know, like if you're not enjoying it, I'm not into it. Like, I just want it like you feeling, um, like feeling hunger, the woman feeling a a man's hunger or desire is what they get off on. So guys that are like, Oh fuck that. Like, I'm just gonna put a wall up and pretend like it's not there and not, you know, go on these cleanses and detoxes and not watch porn and not do this and not tell women they're beautiful when I think they are like, that's exactly what the woman is looking for. And you think, you think you're like Bill Maher or whatever. You think you're respecting that woman. You think you're empowering that woman, but really all you're doing is disempowering both of you. Um, what was it that I heard you say you were talking to some Buddhist and he said, life is not suffering. Life is 
Hard to face. Hard to face. Yeah. So the word that, you know, that we've translated into English as life is suffering, the word is dukkha, which, uh, if you unpack it actually means hard to face. So there's sukha, which is, uh, sweet to face happiness, pleasure. And then there's dukkha, which is something that's hard to face. Um, and basically this guy is, uh, um, he's an MD, he's a, uh, a, a psychotherapist, and he decided to look at Buddhism from sort of like a psycho uh, psychological perspective to sort of like unpack the Buddha's life in terms of trauma um, and psychological tendencies. Uh, and so basically what he thinks is that there wasn't a word for trauma in the Buddha's time. Um, however, it's interesting if you look at the Buddha's life, his mother died when he was like a baby and um, Mark Epstein uh who was on my podcast, <clears throat> who's written multiple books, sort of proposes that what the Buddha meant by uh, dukkha was was that like um, life is full of things that are hard and painful. Suffering, I think, can be more equated to depression. Hard to face is more about grief, you know, things that move through us that we process. Like I always think of, I always think of grief as like water, right? So if you, if the water's not moving, it becomes smelly and stagnant and attracts bacteria and infection and all this gross shit. But if you let the water move through you, you cry, right? Like you actually feel through the emotions, um, then you're utilizing it. Then you're going to come out the other side. It's going to have fresh water, you know? Um, I do. Powerful stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whew. Hell yeah. I think I have some deep questions to ask myself now <laughs> what turns you on and why jesus <laughs> christ i'll have a bagel first but... <laughs> bagels turn me on for sure <laughs> oh wow good stuff good stuff yeah that's just fun yeah uh where can people check out what you're doing uh they can go to my website anya kotz uh, k-a-n-y-a-k-a-a-t-s.com or my podcast a millennial's guide to saving the world or horror rapport, R A P P O R T, available everywhere. Cool. Yeah. And no dick pics welcome, guys. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Those aren't welcome. No. No. Good. Yeah. Making that clear. Yeah. But if someone wants to come up to you and say, I find you beautiful and I'm ravenous for you. <laughs> in that voice. Maybe they're trying to probably give, not. Give a, give a high five and yeah. <laughs> say, hey, love your podcast. Yeah. They can do that. They can do that, yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. It was so much fun. Thank you. That's our show. I'm going to play you out a song called Final Push by Animo. They listened to the podcast and they sent me some music. You can send music to info at kyle.surf if you're part of a band. You can also send voice memos to info at kyle.surf. Thank you so much to the Nell Newman Foundation. Thank you to Santa Cruz Medicinals. If you want to get a box of CBD and a book that I love, you can go to my website, kyle.surf slash box of goodies. I'm also releasing new articles regularly on kyle.surf. So if you want to hear some of my writing, you don't hear writing, you listen to write you don't you don't hear or listen to writing you read writing Whew, it's been a long day all right guys get outside get in the water whatever water you are closest to much love i'll push you like i'm for real i'm making my money then i just steal i forget i'm for real so go circuit barrels and I'll come back when I have changed 
A trusting presence, no other place. Time that dawn, what's real? The heart, the mind, let my hands feel it out. I scream it down, without a doubt. It's only human bound to come to pounds and chisel grounds to figure out. So many solutions now with shape and clay. Evolved from dirt, the miracles made, all created somehow. And I'll push it like I'm for real. Making my money and then I just steal I forget I'm for real So go circuit barrels and ways I'll come back when I have changed Addressed in presence, no other place Time to act on what's real The heart, the mind, let my hands feel it out I warm up my tongue before I let bring the gun So wait the dialogue and I'm about bow down Make a mouth, just the ground, look around The holy downs, the now when blood they drown On my knees to come I'll take it easy No, I'm here to please You show me some famous mercy When I chant down my God Like I've just been converted Now my preach out your words You're up now You heard me back And I'll push it like I'm for real I'm making my money on I just steal I forget I'm for real So go circuit barrels and ways I'll come back when I have changed Dressed in presence, no other place. Time to act on what's for real. The heart, the mind, let my hands feel it out. What am I feel it out? Time to act on what's for real. 